Thanks for joining the Rethink and Retool podcast with Mayhul Mankad, MD, where we take a look at the people side of healthcare and new ideas about enhancing overall well-being. So welcome. The doctor is in the house. Welcome to Rethink and Retool, sponsored by Alliance Health. This is Mayhul Mankad, psychiatrist and chief medical officer for Alliance. No one is more familiar with the topic of women's mental health than Dr. Samantha Meltzer Brody, the Assad Maimondi Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Psychiatry Department at the University of North Carolina. Particularly when it comes to the mental health of women during and after pregnancy, Dr. Meltzer Brody is more knowledgeable than anyone else I have ever met. We're also going to hear how Dr. Meltzer Brody, a person who has worked at both Duke and UNC, handles things on game day. I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Let's get started. Dr. Meltzer Brody. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on Rethink and Retool. Um, I will uh, share that uh, our lives have been intertwined for a minute. Um, and you may not remember this, but I'll, I'll tell you what I remember. Okay. Um, the year was 1997, and uh, I was interviewing for residencies uh, all over the country, um, coming from Chicago and really looking everywhere. Um, and I came down and the lady that ran the psychiatry residency at Duke, her name was Tana Grady. She said, there's someone I need you to meet. And it was you. How about that? Well, I remember meeting you as a fellow Northwestern medical school or soon to be alum. And that was really fun. And I'm certainly glad that you trained at Duke at the same time I was there. So that our paths have continued to cross ever since. Yeah. So um, our paths have crossed, but they've certainly gone in different directions. And one of the pieces I've just been in awe of uh, is your footprint in the world of uh, women's mental health. And I, I, you know, is that space, does it have a different name? Is, is it okay to call it women's mental health or is, what, what is the best term for that? Well, I think women's mental health will be the most broad speaking. Okay. And that is a huge range. Cause if you're going to talk about women's mental health, then you're literally talking about probably from the time of adolescence onward through lifespan. Great point. Versus Speaking about reproductive psychiatry, I, I see myself as a reproductive psychiatrist, very much focused on, in general, the perinatal period, which is much more constrained in terms of time. But you can use either. It really just depends how inclusive you're trying to be. Okay. So reproductive psychiatry. And so I would love to know, because this is a part of, of your story that I'm, I'm unfamiliar with completely, how did you get involved in reproductive psychiatry? So my initial introduction to reproductive psychiatry was as a research assistant. I worked for three years between college and medical school as a research cool. coordinator at Massachusetts General Hospital, 
in Boston. I've heard and of it. had the opportunity to be with just a really incredibly interesting and dynamic group of, of folks doing studies in a lot of things. And they had a new reproductive psychiatry program, perinatal psychiatry program, the MGH Women's Mental Health Program, which continues. And so that was my initial introduction to that and found it to be very, very interesting. My next exposure to that was as a resident working with Dr. Mimi Butterfield at the Durham VA, where there was a women's mental health clinic. And that played a really formative um, role in my interest in women's mental health specifically. But when I got to fellowship training at UNC and then beyond, I realized that I was actually really interested in focusing on the perinatal period because I thought it was and still do such a profound and transformative time for families, for women's, for women, um, and such an important time to intervene. And so I continue to find working with women and their families during that period of time to be enormously rewarding um, because when someone has a mental health condition during the perinatal period, pregnancy or postpartum, and you're able to help them through it, you are changing th the trajectory for, for the mom's life and, and then for their child across two generations. And so it continues to be something that I um, am incredibly inspired by and really love working with that patient population. Wow, so you mentioned impact and intervention in this uh, perinatal period. Um, so, so what do you mean? How, what are the different things that are going on uh, with women? I, I imagine, you know, kind of going back to my, my own training, um, this, this kind of biopsychosocial model. And I, I wonder if that's helpful as an explanation for, for what you're, you're describing. Well, certainly you have very complex biology. You have very complex changes in most physiologic systems. So if you think about pregnancy, your blood volume goes up five times, right? You know, all, wow. most organ systems are impacted. You know, immune system factors, HPA axis system factors, hormonal factors, you know, you name it, it's changing. And then you have this rapid down escalation of everything if it goes well postpartum. Meanwhile, you have the transition from being pregnant to for women who choose to do so lactating. Um, and you, you know, suddenly, you know, end up with this small infant um, without a manual that, you know, is handed to the mom um, and with a, you know, best wishes, <laughs> you know, Good luck. Um, and it goes better or worse, depending on lots of things. But the psychosocial contributions, um, the, so, the support system, the history of childhood adversity and that how that may impact someone's hypothalamic pituitary stress axis and how that responds well or doesn't um, during a time when you're doing sort of HBA axis gymnastics, um, whether someone will find out that they actually don't do well with sleep deprivation, um, or they find out they do fine with that sleep deprivation, whether they 
have the social supports they need to make this all work or they don't. Um, and so I think that it's a time of such profound change that on one hand is very universal because people have children all over the world every day. And on the other hand, is exceptionally unique to that particular individual in that time and place, oh, depending yeah. on the unique arrangement of do they have, you know, three generations of family all living on the same block to help, or they're literally by themselves somewhere with no one else to help them because their partner, you know, left when they found that they were pregnant and it's just them. Do they have maternity leave? You know, do they have adequate finances? So there's so many different things that come into play, both what's biologic genetic predisposition and then what's the psychosocial. So it's no wonder that at least conservatively 10 to 15% of women will have some sort of postpartum mood or anxiety episode. Um, higher in women um, who have more adversity or are higher risk for some reason. And it is always an exceptionally uh, meaningful time to be able to have the privilege to be part of someone's life as a healthcare professional and to try and intervene in a positive way for people who are struggling. That's remarkable. You know, as you've kind of described the situation, instead of thinking of it as kind of biological factors, uh, psychological factors, and social factors as three maybe independent buckets, it sounds like they really are interconnected and things that happen in one of these domains really impacts some of the other domains. Well, certainly we know that you have your genetic risk. So perhaps you have a family history of depression, but we know whether any gene is expressed or turned on or not um, or off is very dependent on any number of factors, but certainly epigenetics. Um, we know that adverse life events cause epigenetic modification. Um, and so it is so complex in the studies we've done at UNC looking with diverse populations of women, it's really not about your race or ethnicity that's going to increase your risk. It's going to be about underlying genetic risk and adversity um, in studies you know, that have been done around the world increases risk in powerful ways. Why is that? Well, likely because of epigenetic modification, likely because of trauma um, and the impact that has on psychological functioning, on HPA axis functioning. Um, and during the perinatal period, the HPA axis is on overdrive. And so when you need your HPA axis to work really well, if it's going to be wonky, which is obviously not a technical term because of you know, early life adversity um, or life adversity that has caused it to act in a way that's dysregulated, it increases risk. Um, but there's so many different permutations of what we see as, for example, perinatal depression, onset during pregnancy versus people that said, I felt great during pregnancy and postpartum, it was like a switch was flipped. Wow. Um, and Clearly, there's people for whom a huge amount is biologically driven. Um, there are then people who have all sorts of psychosocial stressors, including a traumatic birth experience or a child that, um, you know, a premature birth and you end up in the NICU. We know that moms of, of preemies and, and parents of babies in 
neonatal intensive care units have much higher risk. So there's so many different factors that will ultimately decide which way the postpartum period goes for an individual mom and her family. So Dr. Malsabrodi, what I'd love to do after we come back from the break is take this kind of to the next level in understanding, you know, if, if someone is struggling, what are their options uh, in terms of treatment? Because I imagine if there are multiple things that could be contributing uh, to someone struggling, there are probably uh, multiple options. Um, and so uh, really want to hear more about that in a moment, uh, but uh, want to also let people know that we're going to ask Dr. Melzer Brody a very important question, uh, which uh, will probably impact uh, our friendship um, for <laughs> the, for, forever. Uh, all right. So we will be back in a minute. At Alliance, we see healthcare differently than some. Every day, we walk alongside the people we serve on their chosen path to recovery and self-determination. We believe in healthcare that concentrates on the whole person, including support that promotes physical, social, emotional, and financial well-being, and housing security. Helping people live healthier, more satisfying lives, that's the Alliance way. All right. So we are back with Dr. Samantha Meltzer Brody, chair of the UNC Psychiatry Department. And I mention that because that is one place where Dr. Meltzer Brody uh, pledges allegiance. But as I think we heard a few minutes ago, she and I actually met um, further up the road at the darker blue, blue school uh, at Duke um, in another century, as my, my children like to say. Um, and then before that, Dr. Meltzer Brody was uh, at Northwestern University. And so I, I have some of that connection as well. And so my question is, of those three storied institutions, if they were playing each other, which one would you root for? It's a piece of cake. So, Mayhul, I was a Michael Jordan fan um, for a very long time um, and rooted for Carolina long before I um, had the honor of working here. But I've been um, at UNC for this summer will be 22 years. Got so it. it is a easy, easy win. Um, and clearly at least this year, we are far superior to um, <laughs> certainly Duke or Northwestern. So easy, easy choice. It's yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's easy to be better than Northwestern in athletics <laughs> on, on uh, any given Sunday yeah. <laughs> um, or Saturday or Friday. Uh, so anyway, well, 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 thank you for that, uh, Dr. Meltzer Brody. So, and I, 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 I think that's the right answer uh, that uh, a lot of people were expecting from you. So, so, you were telling us, you know, just very clearly all of the components that kind of go into um, maternal well-being um, and when when people are not feeling so well. And so then I, I imagine uh, if we kind of turn the tables a bit and think about, well, okay, we've identified um, here is a woman and a family system that is struggling. Now what? You know, what are our options? Um, and it's probably not a one size fits all. No, certainly I think we should all be humbled 
by anything in medicine that it's not a one size fits all. And certainly in, in, in something as complex as psychiatry or, or mental health. If we look at practice guidelines and if we look at the literature, first line treatment has been, continues to be for mild, moderate symptoms, psychotherapy. Okay. Um, interpersonal psychotherapy or IPT has the largest evidence base. Um, certainly there are other studies that have looked at different forms of cognitive behavioral therapy, behavioral activation therapy. Um, there are multiple different types of psychotherapy, but certainly interpersonal psychotherapy has a very large evidence base. And I think part of its effectiveness is because it's looking at the interpersonal issues, which certainly during the perinatal period are front and center. Um, the it. relationship with a partner um, or the father of the baby or whoever happens to be in the partner role um, relationships with other family members, with the mother's own parents or in-laws or siblings or whoever's in the the village, if you will. Um, um, and then the transformative role of becoming a parent and the relationship um, and how relationships shift in the role of becoming a mother and parenting that way. Um, or, you know, to be most inclusive, whoever it is, is, you know, welcoming a baby into their life, um, whether that's a woman, man, or, or someone who doesn't identify with a specific gender, but right. it is a very transformative time. So, I think that for that reason, IPT has been very effective. Um, so psychotherapy is often the first line treatment. And that's great as long as you're someplace where you can access it. Um, and so access is an issue in terms of there's not enough mental health professionals um, mm -hmm. for people to easily access them, let alone um you know, people with specialty training in, in perinatal mental health. Now, certainly virtual care has been quite helpful um, in expanding access broadly. And that's something that we certainly are providing care much more broadly across North Carolina with virtual care than we were before. And for a lot of mothers, as you can imagine, pregnant women and postpartum women, if they have the option for a virtual appointment, they're going to often choose that versus all the inconveniences of having to travel and take the baby or get childcare or all of those things. So um, I think it's much more accessible than it was. There's still a way to go. If we think about pharmacologic treatment, the um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs have a very robust evidence base, both in pregnancy and lactation. They've so probably that would be like a medicine like... Um fluoxetine, uh, brand name Prozac, or, or sertraline, brand name Zoloft, those kinds of medicines. Exactly. And it's probably been more heavily scrutinized, the SSRIs, than any other drug ever during pregnancy and postpartum. Um, looking for associations, better outcomes, worse outcomes. Um, by and large, if you look at all the data in mass, it's largely extremely reassuring. We know that depression, untreated depression during pregnancy increases risk of preterm birth. Um, we also know that SSRI use may also increase risk of preterm birth. Um, we also know that a lot of people are prescribed less than therapeutic doses of SSRI. So they both have continue to have depression and they're taking an SSRI. Oh. So it gets very murky um, yeah. when you're looking at these studies to try and figure out was depression adequately treated. Um, or were they just taking an antidepressant and still continued to struggle 
with depression. But no, not, I, not, I, sorry to interrupt. Not, just want to mark that you you would. I know we're talking about treatments, but just want to call this out. If I understand correctly, what you're saying is that a woman having depression uh, during the let's say the last trimester of her pregnancy that is what some uh, scientists such as yourself would call an independent risk factor for preterm birth. Did I hear that correctly? Yes. That women wow. who have untreated depression during pregnancy have an increased risk for preterm birth. That's um, remarkable. We also see a risk with SSRIs um, that has been documented as well. So the literature trying to do the chicken egg, what's causing what gets yeah. very tricky because of that. Um, nonetheless, SSRIs are commonly used during pregnancy and for postpartum okay. depression. Okay. Um, and, you know, often then you'll have a combination approach of antidepressant medication and psychotherapy um, that can be very helpful depending on the specific issues an individual person is encountering. In general, antidepressants would be used for more moderate to severe depression. Okay. Um, most recently, and UNC served as the initial site, um, and I served as the academic PI for the clinical trials investigating um, brexanolone, an IV infusion, which is a proprietary formulation of allopregnanolone, which is the neuroactive metabolite of progesterone. Big and words. brexanolone... Um, is the first FDA-approved drug for postpartum depression. So marketed as by the company that makes it, Sage Therapeutics, as Zolreso. Okay. Um, it is a rapidly acting antidepressant. Um, it's a 60-hour IV infusion, and that's was approved for severe postpartum depression. So <clears throat> because you have to be in a medical setting, um, and people are quite sick. It is really for people who have much more severe forms of postpartum depression. But it's worth mentioning that maternal suicide is one of the greatest causes of maternal mortality. My goodness. So when women have postpartum depression, it can um, take their lives um, because of suicide. So when it's that severe and, and you know, certainly um, postpartum psychosis, which is different, but, but devastating when it, when you have postpartum psychiatric illness, that's severe. Um, it's just horrendous associated with suicide or infanticide in its worst forms. Thankfully, those cases are much more rare. Um, and it's much more common that people are going to have more mild, moderate symptoms for which the treatments are again, are going to initially be psychotherapy and, or, um, first line antidepressant therapy. It's really great to hear that there are a range of treatments and that some of the forms of psychotherapy both look inwards uh, in the individual and also into their uh, support system. Right. And, I, and I'm certainly not even getting into all the other types of therapy too, right? So there are studies that have looked at RTMS. There's certainly lots of oh. studies looking at exercise or meditation um, okay. In the same way, if you look at depression writ large, the power of social connection. I do think that people are not meant to go through the perinatal period alone. I don't think people are meant to certainly be parents in a vacuum. And I do think that social connection, community, support systems, 
are really just paramount during this time, which is one reason why over the course of the pandemic, we've seen rates of um, maternal mental health just markedly worsen because oh. all the normal ways people get support often from grandparents and siblings coming to visit, helping them, all of that was profoundly disrupted wow. and people were left feeling extremely lonely and isolated um, and scared, um, none of which helped, you know, anxiety or mood symptoms. So I think a terribly difficult time. And I think the stressors just in the world now and, and where people are, um, we need social connection and, and supports more than ever. And, and I think that's one of our challenges moving forward is, is how we do that well. So I think the world, first of all, needs more Dr. Meltzer Brodies. Um, <laughs> and uh, the piece that I'm curious about, although I, I have a sense as to what your answer is going to be, uh, but what I'd love for us to know as, as we end our time together, what gets Dr. Meltzer Brody going? You know, why do you do what you do? Because you, you have choices. You could be doing anything as a physician. Why do you do this? Well, I will have to blame what I do largely on my family of origin, right? Don't we blame everything on our family of origin and our, our parents? But um, I think that ultimately I've always been very curious about why people do what they do. Um, have parents that were big advocates in, in the mental health arena. Um, I love hearing people's stories and people's narratives and have always been fascinated about, you know, why any individual's, you know, life story and narrative and the factors add up to a particular path. And I just have always found it such a privilege to be able to work with people to hear their life story and to talk about their mental health and to talk about psychiatric symptoms and to do um, our best as a field, however limited it has been to date, um, to try and make it better. And I think now, maybe well, now that we're old, getting older by the day, um, I think my frustration now and what drives me now is we got to do better than we're doing. It's not okay that mental health still has the stigma it has. So I think we have a lot of work to do. That's what drives me now. There's just a huge amount to do to make things better um, for so many people that suffer. And there's a real opportunity, I think, to to do things that will improve the mental health. Um, if we look at our children, if we look at mothers, if we look at other populations, um, and we just need to roll up our sleeves and get to work. Dr. Meltzer Brody, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. The Rethink and Retool Healthcare in the New Era podcast is produced by Alliance Health, a North Carolina public managed care organization. The show is produced by Brandon Alexander. Our associate producer is Denise Dirks and executive producer is Doug Fuller. View our show notes and hear other episodes at alliancehealthplan.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in.